0: at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf.
1: Hi, welcome to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute and a fellow with the International Leadership Association. This podcast is part of a series hosted in conjunction with with the International Leadership Association as part of their 2020 Global Leadership Conference focusing on leading at the edge. At the Innovative Leadership Institute, we help leaders elevate the quality of their leadership and co-create the thriving future they seek. We assist them in navigating the disruptive trends they're facing, developing strategies to elevate themselves and their organizations to continually meet the challenges they face. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the content. With me on the show today is Mary Jo Bouchard. I am delighted to have Mary Jo joining us. Dr. Mary Jo Bouchard has her PhD in organizational leadership and is convinced that our greatest depth and meaning often emerge from seasons of disappointment, surprise, and loss. Her own leadership approach has been shaped by the healing journey with her son, Victor, who was adopted from a Ukrainian orphanage. Mary Jo's research and consulting work focus on helping leaders and organizations stay humane and cultivate trust, especially in times of serious disruption and profound change. So her interview is perfectly timed for what we're going through right now. As a global society, we face a dramatic loss of trust in each other and in our institutions. This reduction in trust impacts everything from people's inability to come together to solve problems to an escalation in mental illness and suicide. Mary Jo will share her experiences with struggle and how it can impact your ability to build trust, including a case study that she's working on right now with a client post-shooting So she'll talk about that to illustrate part of her model. So Mary Jo, first of all, thank you for joining us and welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We're going to bounce back and forth between your trust model, the work you're doing right now, and the adoption of your son, Victor, and weave all of those together. But let's talk, let's start with, is there anything you want to share with our listeners before you jump into the model?
2: Sure. I think the most important thing, trust is a word that we kind of use, we overuse oftentimes, kind of like the word love. And so I would like to just define what I mean when I think of the word love. Charles, Dr. Charles Feltman described trust as choosing to put at risk something that's valuable to you by making it vulnerable to someone else's actions. And, and so distrust is c- the conclusion that in this, in a particular situation, that person cannot make your whatever is important to you safe. You don't feel that it, they have the capacity to make you be safe. And so I think it's important to define beforehand because it's, it's one of those nebulous things that if we don't nail it down, it can be, you can be thinking of one thing and I can be thinking of another.
1: So in a professional setting, that then would be if I have a colleague that I think will misrepresent my work or a boss that will either claim credit or diminish my impact or someone working for me who will speak negatively about me. Sure. Or it
2: could be something as simple as this person has a a great desire and intent to, to, to do me good, but they don't have the intuition yet to represent me well, or they chronically (laughs) overestimate what they can do in an hour. And so they're always 20 minutes late for everything, you know, things like that. So it, it may be something that is negative. It may be something as simple as just a lack of development, you know, that makes people not have the capacity yet to be entrusted with certain things.
1: So it is both capacity and intention.
2: Right. And since all we have is what we can see, in fact, in one of the classes that I was doing once, someone said, all we have is what we can see and what we can't see, we make up. And I love that. All we have is what we can see. And so the best thing that we can do, as Brene Brown says, is it's best for us if we assume that intent is good and focus on whether or not someone is capable of being entrusted with whatever it is that's important to us, if we if we turn it into an intent thing, since we can't control or measure it, then we have two problems instead of one. We have <laughs> this issue that we don't feel that we can trust, and we have someone who someone who is a threat to us, like a diabolical person. And so, if you keep it about capacity and leave the intent to someone besides yourself, it makes it easier to risk growing and let, making room for people to grow.
1: Got it. So can you walk us through your model? And one of the things I took away from our ILA conversation is of the six elements, when there is a breach of trust, it works basically in my mind, like a math formula because everything works like a math mm-hmm. formula that someone may violate trust in one area And yet the other five may be solid. So I have a foundation to rebuild the trust. So the example you gave of someone misses a deadline, but they are consistently competent when they turn their work in and they're aligned with the culture and they behave in a way that is positive, positive in the workplace. So so the breach of trust isn't a binary, they're good or bad it's they missed one component. So can you share your model? And I'm sure that my understanding after seeing you for an hour is minimal compared to your lifetime work in this space.
2: Thank you. I, I think that uh, one of the game changers for me was when I started to really realize that trust is not all or nothing. If trust is about risk, if we have to put, put everything on the line to trust anybody in anything, then then we become hopeless because we we can never we lose trust in one area we can never regain everything that has taken us years to build so then the question became what are the dimensions then you know what are the areas of trust that we can classify things in and so the ask doc model starts with it has, th- has six different dimensions of trust the first one is authenticity do i sense that the person that i am talking to is the genuine article. What they're saying is what they mean. They don't have some kind of hidden agenda or they're not trying to imply something else or get something out of me. There's no manipulative perception. The next one is safety. So do I feel, if I sense safety with someone, I I am not threatened in their presence. When I'm around them, I feel like I'm protected by them, that they're gonna honor who I am. They're not gonna be setting out to find some way to, make me feel vulnerable or stupid. So they, they, they reassure me and they make me feel a sense of being protected. The next one is consistency. And I like to put that one in terms of just saying, the way someone is, is the way they have been. <laughs> what they will do is what they've done. It's when you see predictable trends in words and behavior. And this can be, this is an interesting one because remember, Trust is your willingness to be able to say, I can put something on the line and 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 bank that I don't have to think about that, that element anymore because I know how they're going to behave. So with consistency, you can close your eyes and someone can tell you a scenario and you can basically say, oh, I know exactly. That sounds just like them or that is not, they wouldn't do that. And so you could trust someone consistently being negative, for example, or you can trust that someone is consistently going to have good intentions and bad execution (laughs) or any number of those types of things. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a positive thing, but if you can trust that that's their behavior in advance, then you can prepare and sidestep and still you can trust that they're going to be at least be consistent in that. So I'm not going to give that to them because that would set them up for failure or set me up for failure. Or it could be something good, you know, consistently loyal or consistently articulate or consistent high quality. So that's consistency. And the next one is dependability. And it's obviously a certain kind of consistency. It's it's what I say is what I'm going to do. If I've made a commitment, I'm going to follow through to it, even if it means that it's going to hurt to follow through with it. So it's that dependability. And, and, and the next one is ownership, which takes dependability to a, a much deeper level. It's basically saying... I trust that the person is personally bearing the weight of the outcome on my behalf. So they're not going to let this go. They are taking it personally that this is going to be seen through. And so I don't have to be the only one advocating for myself. I can trust that this person is going to be advocating for the right outcome on my behalf. And then the final one is competence and I define competence as simply you're trusting that someone has the, the experience, the intuition, and the skills to do what is needed in the situation. So that could be technical competence, like I'm not going to ask my therapist to do heart surgery, you know, but it could also be cultural competence, you know, someone who is highly technically skilled, say a nurse, And they get moved to another ward or to another department that functions very differently. And uh, words and actions are uh, interpreted to mean other intent in this other. And they don't know what the new meanings that are attached to those. They might not be culturally competent. And so they might not have the trust of the people on that ward yet because they're not culturally competent. So competence is not limited to technical skill, but to interpersonal emotional and psychosocial competence. So this model basically assumes that every person is both truster and trustee at all times, that healthy trust is reciprocal. So I am choosing to trust you and I am learning what is appropriate to give you in in the way of trust. And you are learning and choosing to entrust me with the things that I can handle and trust. And there's also an element of you can use the Ask Doc model to figure out where you are not trusting yourself yet. You know, do you question your own authenticity? Are you um, are you malicious to yourself so you don't even feel safe in your own company, you know? And so um, the model can really help because um, whether you're talking about parenting or you're talking about supervising or being supervised, if there is this recognition that everybody in the room is ascertaining what is worthy and who is worthy of trust, um, that, that they feel safe to entrust, and where those trust gaps exist, and what it would take to fill them, then you can have a different kind of conversation. It's just not like, well, I don't trust you. I just don't trust you. You lost my trust. You know, uh, instead you can say, look, I'm going to affirm all of the things that I can, that I do trust you in. These things are great, but this one area right here, there's a big gap between what I would like to be able to trust you and what I do trust you. And with people who uh, have my trust in this area, this is what it looks like. So I would be looking for these particular behaviors in order to grow in that trust. And so it gives people a way forward without making them feel that sense of despair. <laughs> I lost their trust now. I'll never get it back. You, know, you can affirm what's still there and then give them manageable, you know, solution-focused conversations so that there is a way forward. You're leaving the light on for them. That also, one of the questions that I ask people as they're trying to determine the why behind whether or not they are willing to trust another person in a certain area, is to close their eyes and imagine when was the last time they trusted anybody in that area. If they have to go back to their childhood, (laughs) you know, then the problem might not just be this other person not doing entrustability, not being entrustable or trustworthy, but your own capacity to trust may be compromised. And so... At that point, it's also a self-talk thing saying, okay, I haven't trusted in this area because in the past, these people damaged my trust. So what's different now? What's different with this person that would make me feel like I could, you know, trust them?
1: So it sounds like then we measure each of our experience when we come into the situation. And so I can identify my gaps, you identify your gaps, the other people. So let's say it's Neil and Aaron, the exercise we did, that, that it's Neil, Aaron, Suzanne, you and I. So maybe I'm quicker to trust, Neil is slower to trust, and we can see where each of us resides. so we can, as a team, accelerate the process of building trust.
2: Right. Yeah. And and acknowledge that no two people in the room have the exact same perceptions and no two people are interpreting the behaviors around them the same way. And so stopping and listening to each person and where they feel that they can and cannot extend trust can help us in informing the way that we engage with them. It could be a simple tweak. It could be something that we're just not being mindful about,
1: you know. Well, the other thing we did in the exercise was through each role, we have access to a different set of information. Right. So I'm coming in with one perception of how the world works. You have a different perception. If you're my boss, you've got more information about the thinking of senior leadership, we would assume. So I've got blind spots, but I think I may think I know what's going on. Right. If someone,
2: for example exhibits a behavior or says a, a verbal response that is outside the realm of what seems like would be worthy of trust the first thing that we can do is ask you know you you said this or you did this thing i don't want to assume what you meant by that where did that come from you know before i make assumptions about it can you can you tell me what were you thinking about or what was the history behind that response because it seemed out of character for you um, or it seemed dissonant with what was going on in the room what were you thinking about i want to understand where you're coming from and just having those clarifications sometimes can lead to some some trust building because you can say okay well in this context let me tell you what that response would typically how that would typically be interpreted to mean so it can help inform both sides about how to build trustability, as well as being willing to trust the other person.
1: Well, and especially right now that we're recording this during the COVID pandemic, that scientific data is emerging. So something I thought was an accurate statement yesterday is inaccurate today. And I know I've run into that in situations I had to repair where I went into a meeting saying, this is what I'm going to do. And then halfway through, I get new information that completely changes my course of action dramatically because I I learn we're significantly behind in our financials and where we need to course correct. When I walked into the meeting, I didn't know that. So I assumed I would do this. I look like I don't have people's backs. I look like I lied, whatever one might say. And that's where I got to intent. It's not ill intent. It's new information shifts my course of action. And so I look like I'm not authentic or dependable or consistent, whatever one of those factors one might attribute to me. And so to your point, asking the question, either that or you think I'm a lying whatever words you put to it, depending on how you feel I have violated our agreements.
2: Right. Yeah. And I, when I'm looking at trust as a situ, you know, as a situation that is constantly emerging and evolving, I, and I see when people do assume, oh, that person's just a liar or that person's just a this or just a that. And I watch that play out. It's not a life giving conclusion it causes that person to self-destruct because the other tape that's invisibly playing in the background is I don't have any power over this person's diabolical character. And therefore, they're going to keep victimizing me rather than if I assume that they mean well, but I, I'm missing some information. I still have power. There's still something that I can do. And so Anything that robs me and victimizes me and continues a trajectory of me being a victim, if I cannot take ownership, then I cannot change it. And so it, it breeds anger and bitterness and further powerlessness, sensed powerlessness. So the more that we can assume, until proven otherwise, good intent, that we're missing some information, we are actually enabling ourselves to to not destruct, uh, self-destruct, you know? And so it is a, a way to keep from starting to despair.
1: Well, so it sounds like if I have the courage, and it takes courage, especially to someone in power to say, this went a different way than I anticipated, please help me understand. Without blaming attribution language, that at least gives me some sense of self-efficacy that hopefully then builds into safety
2: but you're giving them also a chance to self-correct you're moving them into a realm where if they if they made one bad decision they're, now they're not going to have to just walk around like it's the elephant in a room forever you know you're saying help me understand where this came from what happened in there gives them the opportunity to admit that they messed up, you know, because those things happen too. You know, it could be that they got new information. It could just be that they panicked or
1: some other thing. You know, one of my favorite phrases, and it took me forever to learn this, is you see things differently than I do and I respect you. Help me figure out, help me see what you are seeing that I'm not, rather than why'd you do that? Which may still be the question I'm asking, but to affirm I appreciate your judgment and I, I trust you or I respect you or whatever it is. And clearly we're we're seeing this issue from a different lens. And I'd like to understand that that for me has been a very affirming question rather than what I did earlier in my career that was not affirming.
2: It's true. And, and I think sometimes people are afraid to have that conversation because they're afraid that then they will be misunderstood to be saying, convince me, convince me of your opinion. We can, Mm -hmm. we can walk away and still disagree. But if we uh, are willing to say, we're seeing things differently, I at least want to understand your line of logic. Even if we don't end up in the same place, I appreciate who you are enough to at least want to understand how you got where you are. I think even doing that can be a healing experience, but it, it takes courage.
1: Well, the other thing I've learned to do is, is there's an inner tape when I get really frustrated is to say, shut up, Maureen, shut up, Maureen, (laughs) don't react, take a breath, think about it. Because often when I'm really frustrated, I'm missing something and don't know I'm missing something. And my first response would be damaging further to the trust because it's an emotional outburst that would either further harm trust or further harm just a congenial relationship that outbursts aren't helpful.
2: Yeah. I had someone uh, say once that stuck with me, nothing communicates more to another person, how we really value and think of them than the way that we respond in a moment of crisis and conflict. So when I think of something like that, I think now's my chance. Now's my (laughs) chance. I don't want to blow it. This is my chance to really say that I value them.
1: So at this moment, we're going to go on break. We're with Mary Jo Bouchard and Maureen Metcalf, and we are talking about trustworthiness, entrustability, and rebuilding trust. And we're talking about Mary Jo's personal and professional journey. And after break, we'll talk a little bit more about how her personal journey informed this model and how she's using it. And for our listeners, as we go on break, I encourage you to think about How do you step back and ask the questions when you feel like someone has violated trust? Or do you just put it on a shelf and say, okay, I I moved that person from the trust column to the distrust column. How do you react? And is this an invitation to rethink that and rework it slightly? We'll be right back.
0: The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back to Mary Jo Bouchard and Maureen Metcalf. We are talking about trustworthiness, And trustability and rebuilding trust, a personal and professional journey. And Mary Jo, when you and I talked recently, you talked a bit about your son, Victor, and I found your story to be incredibly uplifting. And so I wanted you to share a little bit with our listeners one, because it's an uplifting story, but two, because of the interplay between what you experienced in your personal life and how that's informed your work. And then Additionally, so often as we are building and damaging trust, it is because people have things going on in their personal lives. My journey with my mother's Alzheimer's Mm. made me appear, I'm sure, unaccessible as I was navigating some of that. And so can you share with our listeners, what's the story
2: So our one and only son is named Victor, and we adopted him when he was three years old from an orphanage in Ukraine. And that is where he spent his entire life until the day that we brought him home. So he had no familial context. He'd been raised by caregivers who came and went on shifts with 15 other children in a single grupa. Um, He was extremely small. He was 26 pounds in size, 18-month clothing when we brought him home. He was cognitively fluent in Russian and Ukrainian, but uh, did not have the equipment to speak in any language because he had um, several craniofacial deformities that needed to be surgically corrected. And he's had somewhere between 15 and 18 major surgeries and some minor ones, things that work on his nose, work on the back of his uh, throat, his palate, his ears. So it's been a journey, but we don't often get to really meet people who in the course of their life have never truly belonged to anyone and have never had the opportunity of knowing what it means to belong. And one of the things that my son has taught me is that without trust, the best that we can do is to survive. We cannot thrive. We cannot live. We cannot venture to love unless we can identify trust where we can trust and what, where we can open up our hearts to be vulnerable. And I think this is one of the reasons why some children never are able to bond who are traumatized. So, so much when they're younger because they never had the opportunity to feel like their heart was able to let go, let down and let people in. So when we, when we first, we lived in Ukraine for a month as we were getting to know him before we brought him home and, We were allowed to see him for two hours a day. And when we would go into his, into his grupa, the little children would rush us and grab hold of my leg and just smile as hard as they could and say, mama, papa, mama, papa. And it was heartbreaking because it was like their desperate chance. They they didn't know how the process worked. And, but what my son would do is when he would see that, he would let them rush us and he would kind of cower in the background and sort of melt. And as painful as it was, I had to tell those children, you are beautiful and you are precious, but you're not, you're not my, you're not my son. You're not my daughter. Only Victor is my son. And then he would inflate like a balloon. You could just see his whole countenance change and he'd pull up his pants and walk like through the, you know, the the people would, the kids would part and they, and he would come to us and we would change his clothes out of his orphan clothes. And we'd put his own clothes. He'd never owned anything before. Can you imagine what that does to your identity? He'd never owned anything before and put his clothes on and wash, wash his hands and his feet and tell him that we loved him. And so one of the things that I believe is crucial and fundamental for trust is belonging. And as we got to know him, and even as we brought him home, we didn't start just by telling him the rules. We we lived the rules in front of him and our, you know, our values in front of him. But what we did most more, most of all was we see you, we love you, we like you. You know, we're always going to be your parents. You're always going to be with us. We're proud of who you are, even though we see that you're broken. We, we love you for who you are. And. And so because of that he was being filled up with things that he'd never been filled up before and we as we as we were cultivating belonging and his sense of self and his sense of uh, owning his own his shared identity with us as a family when he started being able to to speak he started to say we think this we do this we believe this and out of that that hunger to to own and be owned by one another, to be part of this thing that we call family, he, his heart had the capacity to open up and to trust and to be trusted. The next one was assuming positive intent. And because we were in the orphanage or in the, in the town for a month, we got to see his original contexts and where behaviors came from. So when he spilled his water and he went white and panicked, or he never said, I'm full, but would say more later and watch us wrap up his little three p- three pieces of quesadilla and put it in the fridge and go and check to make sure it was still there. We knew where that came from, you know, but I got a call from his kindergarten teacher that, or preschool teacher that he had only child syndrome. I said, what does that mean? Can you tell me what that looks like? And she said, he doesn't want to share. Like many only children, he doesn't want to share. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. As she's describing, thinking every time that we have people at our house, he shares just fine. Uh, And I said, can you go a little more detail what that looks like? And she said, he'll play with the toy and then he'll hold it and he won't want to put it down. He'll pick another toy and he won't want to put it down and he'll just walk over and he'll, he'll look at walking Christmas tree, just covered with toys. And he'll stand at the doorway and cry when it's recess. And I said, okay, I think that this is actually coming from the fact that he didn't own anything in the orphanage, and this is the first time he's been in an institutional environment since that time. So her first response was, honey, I've been doing preschool for 30 years. I know children. I said, you do do know children, but I know Victor. (laughs) And I also know that you probably haven't had any other, you know, orphans who've grown up in an orphanage before. So just try this, humor me. If it doesn't work, stop in a week. When he gets there, point to where all the toys are that he loves and at recess, show him that they're still there. And before he leaves, show him they're still there. I said, if in a week or two, it doesn't work, then I will agree with you. He's got only child syndrome and we can deal with that. It took him not even two days, not even two days, just to, to, to answer the question, what's different from the last time that I was in this, you know, this type of an environment that makes me be able to trust that I can put this down and it'll be back there tomorrow. It'll be back there after recess. So. Helping him to cultivate those those cognitive reframes and helping other people to start asking, okay, what's different about this kid that makes me not makes it not fair to assume that I know what this is. And then finally not making trust all or nothing. We would say, hey, we trust you in this. You're still growing in this, and that's okay. This is what it needs to look like. And so we could cheer him on in the areas that, that he needed to grow without him feeling like all the other things were at risk. So he taught me so much because we started at nothing. And his willingness to open up his heart and trust us also made me want to think really hard about how can I set expectations for him that are, that are reachable, that are doable, that celebrate his progress in me being able to see that he's trustworthy in this area, but also that I'm growing, In my entrustability for him, how am I different from a caregiver? And so that reframed the way that I started talking about trust at work and in other places, because I saw the only way to grow was to divide it into the categories and to make it to paint a picture of where where we're
1: going for him. So as we think then transitioning from Victor to a workplace and especially during COVID where for some people they're feeling a sense of isolation so that belonging may feel a little bit broken that we still, for people working remotely, so a lot of people I realize about 60% of the population is still going to work Mm -hmm. and in many cases feeling unsafe differently. For those working remotely, I think some are thriving and loving introverts. We like being separate. For people who require a sense of belonging and connection as part of employee engagement, and it's not just extroverts, but for many people, how do we create that sense of belonging that underpins trust when we're not physically in the same place?
2: That's a really good question. I think that it really depends on what had been cultivated before, so that you can build on it. For people that were just going to work and just you know, the people around them were just existing around them and nobody really was building that sense of belonging, it, it's going to take some creativity to know how to start from a virtual environment. And what I would say to that is instead of thinking, well, what would we do in person? Let's try to just do that virtually think of the platform itself as its own delivery system instead of a copy of what you're, you know, what you would do in person. Think of the virtual environment as its own delivery system and say, what advantages does it have over the, the, the workplace? One advantage that can help build belonging is that for the first time, people that would normally be convening at a board, in a boardroom or, you know, in a conference room, suddenly, you get to meet their kid and their dog and, you know, their humanity is a lot more visible. So so you can build on that level of intimacy that's unavoidable in the virtual environment. And you can capitalize on that because that's not something that you have the ability to do in in person. For people that already did have rapport and a sense of belonging, it makes it a lot easier. You can say, well, we always had potlucks. Well. Well, we're going to do a virtual potluck. Everybody bring your you know, your food and we'll eat together, or we're going to celebrate a birthday party. If those things were already happening, then you can kind of try to find a new way to make it virtual. But in those areas where belonging really kind of wasn't a thing, I think the virtual environment does make it a little bit easier to make baby steps toward that intimacy because you're meeting each other in your homes. And so that humanity is, is already embedded in the in the, in the communication. So you can say it's bring your kid to work day. And and all of it means is the kids come out of their bedroom and wave, you know, or, you know, those types of things, which I say brainstorm for the, for the, the, the benefits and the natural opportunities that the virtual environment affords that wouldn't be as easy if you were in person, but for whether you're in person, or in a virtual environment, I think the other thing that you can do is start to name the things that are, and, and honor the things that are shaping our lives right now that weren't shaping our lives in March of this year or February of this year. So coming together and saying, hey, you know, am I the only person who's feeling exhausted? Am I the only person who's feeling, let's talk to, let's talk about what what's on our plates that besides, besides work that that is shaping our environment and how can we help each other through this, you know? And I think sometimes just like my my mother-in-law, she was sick for a year and a half and the doctors were telling her that she was imagining things until finally she was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of leukemia. And it was actually good news because it had a name. And when you have a name, then there's a, there's a plan. You can make a plan. And she, she had a successful bone marrow transplant and She's thriving, and it's been close to seven years now since that happened. But that kind of thing happens at the workplace. You know, we're all dealing with stuff and we're all not okay, and we're interpreting everybody's not okayness getting on each other. And instead of just saying, Look, can we just say, Let's just name the things that are in the room and let's ask each other, What can we do? To lighten the load, what small tiny actions can we do to help each other feel valued and honored, and and our struggle being humanized? You know, how many of us are homeschooling our kids right now, for example, or you know those types of things. Mm-hmm. Just just having those conversations, I think, can help people feel a sense of belonging.
1: I have a client who is doing exactly that, and he is brilliant at this. That. Before COVID, they were a little more work, and, and it's a professional high-performing organization, very successful, and their senior team was a close-knit team. He worried when they started working from home that they wouldn't, and one of the things they began doing is a kind of a almost a check-in when we come into meetings on the personal side, because they do have people with young kids that are homeschooling, people with college kids that are worried about... What does this mean for my life? And are they, do I get to go to school or am I staying home? The range of issues that people across the board are facing. And so they did become more emotionally supportive as a team. So, you know, I grew up with uh, the, you do home stuff at home and you do work stuff at work and they don't mix. And while I believe that that is not the most effective approach, I'm still a little guarded about what I share, unless it's a very close colleague. That barrier seems to have moved to more sharing because it makes sense that we are in each other's homes visually and that the interpersonal, I love seeing people's kids come into the, the video. My dog is often sitting in the chair behind me One of the two, the pit bull tries to jump onto the video pretty regularly, so we are able to create a more intimate bond, professionally intimate bond, that does change the sense of belonging.
2: Yeah, just humanizing one another is the the seeing each other, and and really uh, giving each other an opportunity to validate the struggles that that we bring to work with us every day whether or not we're saying them out loud it inform it helps inform our conversations when someone is tense we can remember in the back of our heads oh that's right they've got they haven't seen their parents in person since covid and they're that would bother me too you know that's what's going on right now you know what i mean it, it enabling it enables us to see each other as human beings and not just functionaries collaborating together on projects for work. And and honestly, you know, they say that 40% of the work population is truly and deeply engaged. And I think that that's a generous estimate. But I think part of that is if you leave your humanity at the door, then the deepest, most profound things that drive you out of bed in the morning and keep you most alive, you're not bringing those with you. And so really it's more of a challenge, I think, to learn how to integrate properly the best of who we are, including our struggles and all of that stuff in a way that will strengthen and reinforce what we're doing at work rather than compete with it.
1: I love that the idea of integration and that this is an opportunity acknowledging all of the bad things that are happening. So I, I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish and that out of this crisis will come opportunities. And I I believe that the opportunity for deepening relationships is incredibly real. And I know with, with clients, same, I see, not only do I see their houses, but I see them differently. We show up without the, what I would call the costume, the makeup, the suits, the stuff we are navigating. You know, I mentioned my mom who's now in assisted living and I haven't seen her since last Christmas. And I don't know that she'll live through this. So I don't know that I'll ever see her again. You know, those things are present. I rarely share them, but people who know me well are aware that that's, happening in the background. And I feel more comfortable sharing that that is, or I wouldn't have shared it on an interview that's going to be publicly available. It does seem like that is an opportunity to build a kind of trust that we would not have had hit and run at the sharing a bagel.
2: It's true. And, you know, if you think about it, if trust is the the willingness to make something vulnerable to someone else's actions. We have an unprecedented opportunity right now because everybody is already vulnerable. So if, if if I'm the first one in the room who appropriately exposes an area that's vulnerable in my life in a way that it can be channeled to more productive and inspired work, then I just made everybody else in the room who's, who's also vulnerable feel safe because they're vulnerable. We can be vulnerable together in a way that's productive and constructive and hope-centered and solution-focused. And so I think that this time of deep and profound vulnerability is an unprecedented opportunity to build trust because we already know we're not okay.
1: I love that. Hope-centered and solution-focused around vulnerability. So, So to your point, I think of meetings I've been in where Sometimes I'm the first one to share, depending on my role. If I'm facilitating, I'm often not the first one to share. But that as soon as someone shares, it seems like everyone is, is safe to, and again, appropriate, not right. life history, but the things that are happening with our parents and our children and our, our spouses or partners or domestic people people that live in our homes. In many cases, I think I read today, 52% of young adults are now living with their parents. And these are young people who would probably rather be living someplace else. Sure. How are they navigating it? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it is a, you used the metaphor before we got on the phone of the soup and all the ingredients are touching. They're floating around in the soup and sometimes they don't want to be in the soup.
2: Yes, and so, so then it becomes, if we're, if we're all vulnerable, then the question becomes, what can I do right now that can do the most good and the least damage with the resources that I have in, the, in, the, in front of me? And if you can answer that well, then you're building trust with the, the person in front of you, and you're also building trust inside of yourself because you're learning how to talk to yourself in a way that's trust building.
1: So, in our last minute, would you tell us a little bit, and I realize it's one minute, about building trust within ourselves? Because I don't know that most of us think about, do I trust myself in this situation?
2: Yeah. I think part of it begins with self compassion, which Dr. Kristen Neff defines as including yourself in the circle of compassion that you extend to others. And that requires that you stand outside of yourself and say, hey, look, there's a human being right there that I spend a lot of time with. Would I treat anybody else the way that I treat that person? Or am I being more malicious in my head and in the way that that I assume intentions and things like that, that I would never do to anyone else? And so when you start saying that, you can start looking at yourself as a person that is worthy of love, that you love anyone else and that you want to treat as a friend. How am I not being a friend To the person I'm seeing in the mirror, and how can I grow that trust? If we start having that conversation, then I think we can start to heal imposter syndrome and we can start to move into a place of owning our own authenticity.
1: Beautiful. Thank you. It's hard to summarize this conversation. So, for our listeners, Mary Jo's Ask Doc model, we'll have it on the blog so you can see an image of it and list the the six specific areas that are part of the trust formula and things that stood out to me are that it is a formula damaging or denting trust in one area does is not binary that if we can sustain trust in some of the areas we can rebuild that naming it is helpful that having those conversations, then I'm, I'm no longer a victim. I take ownership and can participate in the rebuilding and often, because if I distrust someone else, they may not know it. So, we can't rebuild if they don't know it's broken. So, the trust formula and the trust construct gives us a lot of power to accelerate building it and to accelerate healing it. And, you know, the other things you talked about this idea of trusting myself and self compassion that as I look at the trust formula, I need to add myself into that equation. Yes. And remember that anytime we walk into a room, it's not just you and I, it's my history and all the things that have happened to me, your history, all of the people in your current family constellation. So my distrust may have nothing to do with the person sitting across from me. It may have something to do with my father or my grandmother or my my spouse and what's happening in our lives. And I think that's so important to remember that it's not, that it is a much more complicated equation.
2: Yes. And, and that I am choosing to learn to trust you and that you are choosing to learn to trust me. So how can we help each other to do each other the most good, to set each other up for success in that journey? Cause it's, it's, it's an eternal journey,
1: you know, we're never done. So on that note, I want to close. How do we set ourselves and each other up for success on this journey that we are sharing for a moment or for a lifetime? Mm -hmm. So Mary Jo, where would people reach you to learn more about your work, to hire you as a consultant, to read your research?
2: So my email is dr.burchard at concordleader.com. And my website is really simple, concordleader.com. And we've got resources on there about trust and readiness and belonging. And I would be happy to speak further to anyone who would like to talk more deeply in their context. Great, thank
1: you. And I assume you also connect with people on LinkedIn. Absolutely, yes. And I'm there as Dr. Mary Jo Burchard. Okay, and it's B-U-C-H-A-R-D. B-U-R-C-H-A-R. You know, it's okay. The R is often (laughs) silent. And I'm reading it on the screen, (laughs) B-U-R-C-H-A-R-D. And I do encourage our listeners to think about what you heard from Mary Jo that you can put into practice immediately in your lives to continue to build trust. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thank you for investing your precious time with us today. We're delighted to share the wisdom from the International Leadership Association 2020 Global Leadership Conference, Leading at the Edge we encourage you to join for additional conversations. Please bookmark this podcast, subscribe, like it, share it with your friends and colleagues. Most importantly, thank you for focusing on elevating your own leadership and making an impact in the world today.
0: Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.